Yo, yo, what up, what up? Welcome to the WTF Should I Do With My Life podcast. I am your host, Jacob Sokol, and this podcast is all about helping you live with greater levels of success, purpose, and authenticity while being strategic about the unique challenges and opportunities that exist today. So these interviews are designed to bring you more clarity, more confidence, and more inspiration so you can perform better at work, in your relationships, and with any other responsibilities that you have. Now, I've taken a break from doing these podcasts as regularly as I used to, but today is a special treat. I had something going on in my life that felt very relevant to capture in a podcast, and uh, with that said, I will introduce today's guest, who is Pilar Gerasimo. And uh, Pilar is a health journalist and thought leader, best known for her work as founding editor of Experience Life magazine, which is a progressive, whole-person, healthy-living magazine that reaches more than 3 million people nationwide. Uh, Pilar is also the co-host of the Living Experiment podcast, which is a weekly podcast that challenges the limiting norms, the superficial obsessions, and the status quo assumptions that can make healthy living such a pain in the ass. That's not how she says it, but that's how I say it. Um, And Pilar is a a special person in my life. I've known her, I'd say, maybe seven or eight years, and uh, she was a very early mentor to me on this path of consciously figuring out how to step out of society's matrix and create a life that was authentic to myself and on my own terms. And she was someone who was uh, quite successful both in the material world, but also in in her own spiritual world and in being true to herself and, and what mattered most and finding a way to Uh, kind of coexist, have her values very clear to her and still um, operate in the world without kind of moving to some ancient uh, esoteric city in Asia and kind of disconnecting from all of society. So uh, I'm pumped today to uh, share this interview. It was a vulnerable interview for me. And what we talk about is aging. And I will share more about how this topic came up and um, do the backstory in a moment when we when we jump into the interview, but essentially today we're going to cover uh, how to become more attractive as you age, and we're going to talk about the difference between aging from fear versus fun. We're going to go into how to avoid losing your social value as you get older, how to increase your confidence and eliminate your aging insecurities. And how to not become uh, George Costanza as you age and just completely give up on caring for yourself and looking good. And we'll also talk about rebelling against society's anti-aging propaganda and really taking back your power. So let's jump in. Hey, Pilar. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jacob. Great to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I always appreciate you and your wisdom and your mentorship. And this is a particularly uh, interesting place for us to come together. Uh, I would love to create a little bit of context for everyone who is listening as to how me and you kind of ended up on this conversation together and I was thinking about it before we <laughs> before we started and I was like this is the podcast that I, I kind of least want to do on like part of me and on another part of me I'm like this is going to be like really important to do 
And so I, I feel like I stiff armed you into doing this, or I, I strong armed you into doing it. Well, I just felt like it was a conversation that we should have. Well, you you did in a way, and this is it was a really good taste of my own medicine because essentially, as a life coach, this is what I do for my clients: is I hold up a mirror to what's actually going on, and I kind of show them their greatness and how they might be selling themselves short of that, and it's. You know, I know I do my job really right when they're like, oh, I hate you, Jacob. Like, that's how I know we got to the place that actually was like the most like important place to get to. And I had a little bit of that feeling with you. I was like, oh, I hate, I, I hate you because you love me so much that you're not willing to let me sell myself short. So I appreciate right that. Right on. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> well, for everyone who's wondering how we got to this place, so I'll I'll rewind a little bit and... I would say last October, I transitioned and, and ended a four-year relationship that was the hardest decision of my life, and I was uh, madly in love with this this amazing woman, um, but just intuitively felt like it, it, it had kind of hit the point where um, we were staying together, in part because we loved each other so much, but in part for comfort more than for a shared vision of what we could create together in the future. And having left that, it was almost as if I had stepped out of like a relationship distortion field that I had been in for the last four years before that, where like, it it was like all of a sudden leaving of this four year unit that we created. I, I, it was like four years of aging happened like overnight. Like I was like, whoa, this is me not in relationship. Like now I, I thought I was still that, but now I'm, I'm in this place. And there were a few things that, that were happening there. Like, um, my, my kind of waist felt different. My libido felt a little bit different. And, and the, the, one of the main things was I noticed my hairline was, was receding and kind of the crown in my head was balding a bit. And it was pretty, um, what felt preliminary and I, I kind of wanted to see, well, what, what options do I have here for keeping a full head of hair? Like, let me, I'm an optimistic guy. There's gotta be a way to figure this out. And I do a ton of research online and end up just kind of frustrated with all the different mixed messages about what works and what doesn't. And also having a value around health and taking care of myself. I, I didn't want to just jump into some of the solutions that that may work for most men, but kind of mess with your hormones or or um, sacrifice your health at the uh, ex- at the expense of um, having a full head of hair. And so, you were the person who I was like, I feel totally you know stuck and, and overwhelmed, and I don't know really what to do or who to believe. And I'm going to reach out to Pilar and just see like you know I think my first email was basically explaining this and saying like who can you point me to because you're you're so connected and knowledgeable about the health world who can you connect me to who can who can kind of be the the holistic way to keep my head of hair and and you wrote back and you're basically like no one dude you just kind of got to deal with it and i was like <laughs> i was like what like not expecting that at all like totally felt you know blindsided by that and you know your 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 main thing was you're like you know essentially you should really question why you think baldness is is bad. And I'm like, Oh my God. So not where I, you know, thought that email (laughs) was going to go in your response. And, and you, you know, lovingly suggested you're like, 
you know, why don't you like look up some like sexy bald men on Pinterest and like, you know, see like, you know, start to change your or, or open your view of what you think sexy is. And I, I, I went on Pinterest and I, I started Googling bald, sexy bald men. And I, I definitely was laughing, but not finding it, you know, helpful for my, <laughs> my, you know, semi crisis <laughs> of my, my head on my, my hair. Um, so, so I emailed you back and we kind of went back and forth a few times and, uh, I explained that part of the urgency that I felt to find a solution now was that I wanted to preserve my hair because what I read online is kind of like once it's, once you, you lose it, it's harder to get it back than it is to, to keep what you have. And to go a bit deeper, I mentioned that, you know, I personally have a, a self image of someone who's attractive and that I, I was having just left this relationship, I felt like there was a significant amount of growth that I wanted to do in order to become the person who was able to create the quality of relationship that I was looking for in the future. And that that could take years. And I kind of expected to have a full head of hair for those years. And now that I didn't, I was starting to question, um, maybe, you know, there was some insecurity of maybe I won't be able to, to create that. And then I'll kind of, I'll share what what you said here, and then we can we can jump into the convo. But you you basically helped me see the distinction between aging prematurely because I'm unhealthy or, or living in a way that's unhealthy versus just aging and kind of noticing the difference between those two things. And then as far as the uh, attractiveness, you know, explaining to me that you're like I have so much to say about what makes a man attractive, and you know, it is not his head of hair, and. Uh, and you suggested that we do an interview on it and that it could be really helpful for my community and kind of just to invite people into the process. So once again, thank you for taking the time. W- was there anything that I missed mm-hmm. there that you think I should have uh, included that would be helpful? Well, just that I think in the course of our conversation, you know, I wanted to inquire whether you felt your own health was good. Because I do think there are times where people begin to lose their hair at a precipitous rate, and it can be because of a health issue. It could be, you know, something like a thyroid disorder, hormonal disruption, some kind of unmitigated stress, a nutritional deficiency, um, you know, heavy metals. There could be a lot of reasons that are health related that someone could prematurely begin uh, or acutely begin losing hair. And so I don't want to be flip or dismissive of anybody who's having that experience and simply say, you know, hey, suck it up, you're aging, get, just get used to it. But there was something about the tone and tenor of your inquiry that made me feel that this was more about your coming to terms with what it meant to be a younger man who's beginning to show the visible signs of aging that are are natural, that are part of the kind of run rate expectations of, you know, a receding hairline or male pattern baldness. Or for many of us, I've been really aggressively examining my own judgments about having my hair turn silver or seeing the signs of aging on my face. And for women, even more so than men, we associate the changes in our appearance, the visible signs of aging with a precipitous loss of social value, of feeling that we're no longer as relevant, as attractive, uh, legitimately as valuable to people in society. And those judgments, the self-judgments, the fear of other people's judgments are so debilitating on so many levels, conscious and unconscious, that I really wanted to, once we dismissed with the question of, is this really about your health, be more focused on challenging some of your assumptions about what your visible signs of aging, your change of hair pattern, for example, um, really meant 
And, and yeah, I think, um, I think so often the, the first signs of aging are the ones that we dive into trying to mask and camouflage or overcome, whether it's with cosmetics or drug interventions or surgical interventions, camouflaging, hiding. And there's something about that experience and the stress that goes along with it that I think doesn't often get considered in terms of what's the real impact to our health of that <laughs> you know what's the what's really going on is it working the other way in other words not that our health is making us appear old but our evidence of aging is stressing us out and contributing to our body-wide um, burdens of stress and toxicity so that was the framework and I'm so grateful and I'm so proud of you um, that you were willing to have this conversation with me it's something I've been talking much more about in the past few years, and um, I'm looking forward to talking more about it with you today. And I will say, just by way of context, you know, I don't know where our conversation today is going to go, but uh, Dallas Hartwig and I, we do a podcast called The Living Experiment. It's a weekly experiment, our weekly podcast. Um, and we did an episode called Aging Gracefully, where we first addressed some of these issues. So I'll share insights from that, but this may be a completely different conversation. So if people want to go deep on this, I just want to point out there's another chat that they can listen in on if they want to. But I'm, I'm so curious to hear where your thoughts have been about this in the time since we talked. And um, one other piece of context I just think is interesting is I think the last time you and I had a really significant conversation interview format was way back when you were talking about um, your program, you know, what, this is my language, but what the fuck should I do with my life? And we were talking about millennials and people in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder to what extent your audience has aged along with you and people who were in their 20s then or in their 30s and now or 40s and, and thinking about this stuff. Yeah, I would think a significant portion of them have. And it is cool to see that, uh, you know, now we're many, many years ahead and we get to continue to dive into, okay, so what does it look like to create an optimal experience of life now? So for this, right for this conversation, particularly, you know, I'm pretty open to going, uh, wherever you'd like. I've got, I've got a bunch of questions and I also want to yeah. honor the seed inside of you that, um, was inspired to kind of have this conversation uh, publicly with me and kind of share your wisdom on it. So one thing that I know that you you talk about and that you brought into my awareness, and I, I found this in a little bit of research that I did before our conversation, was you talk about the cult of youth. And I think that could be a, a good next point for us to jump into, but I'm also open to going wherever you'd like. Yeah. I love to talk about that. Well, I want to start by just giving props and credit where credit is due um, to my friend Cindy Joseph, who is really the, the, I think, the instigator of what I would call the pro-age revolution and gave it that moniker herself, you know, named it um, and made a very public, very focused effort on voicing her philosophy of aging, of positive aging. And rather than thinking of anti-aging, which is really the language you know, that I think just comes right out of the cult of youth, that youth is better than young is better than old, rich is better than poor, you know, we go through all of those kinds of hierarchies of judgments. But her idea um, came out of her own experience of being discovered as a model late in her 40s, after she had grown her silver hair out and cut off the last 
midst of her hair coloring, she was a makeup artist in New York and was discovered as a model um, by Dolce & Gabbana, who asked her to be part of the campaign. And she was like, what are you talking about? I'm in my late 40s. I'm not a model anyway. I've got all the silver hair. And they were like, we love your look. And so mm. this began a real investigation for her into what it meant to um, be of a certain age and her assumptions about what her life was going to be. She had begun prior to that experience doing a lot of her own investigations into what pleased her, what made her happy, living her life in ways that she found more pleasurable. And it is to this day her feeling, her clear sense of reality that what they were attracted to in her wasn't just her kind of hip silver haired look, it was the fact that she was exuding happiness and pleasure and excitement in her life and had a lot of enthusiasm. And that, that her feeling that good about herself and that accepting and excited about herself was what had them notice her and say, whatever you got, we want. Mm. We want a picture of that. We want to sell things around that. And I, when I met Cindy, at that time, she was a model and a makeup artist. Um, since then, she's become a very successful entrepreneur with a line of what she calls pro-age skincare and cosmetics. Her company is called Boom by Cindy Joseph. And uh, it really, in some ways, she built the products around the attitude and philosophy, not the other way around. So um, it's, it's, I always feel like you know people want to buy the products in part because they're great products and in part because they're buying into what she stands for. She's this radiantly beautiful, vivacious, sexy woman who's now in her mid-60s, and she is absolutely a mentor of mine. So I just wanted to preface a lot of what I'm going to be sharing comes out of conversations I've had with Cindy and observations that I've made about how gorgeous she is as she's aging and how she really is getting better and happier and, and contributing in ways w with her age that she wasn't before. And she's very vocal about that. So the cult of youth, you know, I think shorthand for that is just the knowledge that all of us have. There, are, There's a presumption that younger is better than older and that, you know, glory and fame and sexiness and legitimacy and credibility and relevancy all come with youth. And we have multi-billion dollar industries constantly trying to sell us on the look of youth, the appearance of youth, um, the trappings of youth. Yeah. And so it, it's it, very it, easy to, to get brainwashed by to, it. To, yeah. To, so to jump in with you here. So this is one of the frustrations of, that I have with uh, just consumerism as a whole is that it seems that so much of it is built around a deep belief that they're these corporations and mass media and the advertising industry is trying to implant in us that we're not enough. But if we buy their product and we yeah. get that new phone or we get that new thing, then we'll finally be enough until the next thing comes mm -hmm. out. And then we need to get that next thing and then we'll finally be enough. And there's like, it's almost mm -hmm. seems like our whole yeah. economy is built on keeping us hating ourselves or feeling disempowered in some way. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And we just kind of move from crisis of insecurity to crisis of inadequacy to crisis of shame. Um, and I often say, you know, there's every life stage from childhood to death is accompanied by some opportunity for a company to sell us something about whatever version of not good enough comes with it that age, you know, acne, or um, the signs of puberty when you're in your adolescence, for example. And, you know, as you move into adulthood, it's your, you know, are you successful enough? Are you sexy enough? Do you look fertile and young? If you're a woman, you know, do you have drive and, you know, enough 
like masculine testosterone if you're a man. And this goes all the way into very old age. But I think it's at a fever pitch um, at middle age. And, you know, at the first signs of aging, there is still very much this sense that you can beat it back or um, overcome the, the natural progression of age by virtue of a, a store-bought illusion, some viable thing that you can do, buy, use, embark on, subscribe to, that will make you appear young, if not feel or look, you know, pass for young. Um, and it becomes an obsession and it creeps into our unconscious in ways that I think really have us doubting ourselves. And I think as Cindy noted, that self-doubt contributes to a kind of self-hiding. And that translates as lack of confidence and real insecurity that actually does render us less attractive to other people. So it's kind of this strange, you know, ironic catch-22, I guess, where the more you buy into it, the more insecure you become, the less vital, the less confident, the less, you know, pleasurable you you are and feel to other people and the more the self-fulfilling prophecy uh, becomes true so i think that's part of the reason you know when you were sort of going down that road of surely there must be something that i can do <laughs> to stop yep. this <laughs> this hair <laughs> slide i really wanted to you know address that right up front and say First, I think there's a there's a foregone conclusion that may be a flawed assumption that you're making that you will become less attractive as a man as if you as you lose your hair um, or with, you know, many people as their hair turns silver and they begin coloring it. Um, and, and for me, I will say a lot of that was true for me. I, I for many years, I colored my hair just because I thought it was fun. You know, I added highlights or I changed the color this way or that way. But as I moved into the 30s and then my 40s, I realized I was beginning to cover my hair, color my hair more often in order to cover silver streaks and, and grays. And um, I prefer the word silver <laughs> to gray. Gray sounds sort of drab and silver, I think, more really <laughs> describes <laughs> the silvery, gorgeous, I think of like a Daenerys Targaryen kind of look. Um, but I had the same experience you had, Jacob, of going, well, there has got to be. And I bought dozens of products from little mascara wands to cover up my gray at my temples to boxes of hair color. I spent thousands and thousands of dollars at hair salons trying to get it this way and that way. Um, and then at the same time, you know, as I was moving into my late 40s, really looking at my skin and going, oh my gosh, wrinkles, you know, spots, things I have to do something about. And I want to say up front, I don't object and I have no judgment to anybody doing anything that they want to do to play with their appearance or do, you know, disguise their appearance, make themselves look different than they do. That's your business. But I noticed that for me, and I think I heard in what you were saying about you, that there was this emerging sense of insecurity and fear, this fear based on the notion of what it would mean if I appeared any older than I looked today. Yeah. And what that set up for me was just what is it going to be like when I'm 60 or 70 or 80? I don't want to think the rest of my life is a downward slide from here. I need to get a hold of this seriously. <laughs> so I think that's the best reason to have this conversation of all is just to help other people ask themselves, you know, what are my judgments and assumptions about aging? My own and other people's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And you know, for me, it was very much so from a place of like, life is so good right now. And like, if my physical appearance changes, maybe the quality of my my life could change. But there's a great distinction in there that you made about 
when you believe and actually buy into this idea that you become less attractive as you age, then that can internally mess with your your self-confidence and that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And kind of, I remember earlier today, I was I was kind of thinking about, all right, well, what, what should we talk about? And what are my life experiences with this topic? This is one of the few times I'm, I'm interviewing someone on a topic that I I really haven't given much thought to most most of the time when I'm interviewing someone I've you know read books on this I've applied this stuff but this is like yeah. kind of new ground for me and I remember thinking back to my early 20s when I was in a a very much a, a phase of looking to prove my manhood and and there was a lot of behavior driven by that and I was kind of in my partying uh regularly phase and I remember I had I had had some kind of like cut on my nose that was right at the center and right at the front of my face. And it was like a Friday. So this was Friday during the day. And it, like Friday nights were like golden. Like those were the, the nights where you're like, you can't miss a Friday night, man. You work all week. You got to celebrate on Friday night. That's your that's your time to really enjoy life. I mean, that's a whole you know different, uh, not that that wasn't a fun way to be living life then, but that was my reality. And I, re- <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, you know what? Like there was a part of me that was so insecure about this this big mark on the front of my face, and I said, you know what, I'm I'm just gonna go out there and actually get excited about the fact that I have this mark on my face. Like I'm genuinely gonna like reverse psychology myself into just being pumped up and seeing if I could actually you know attract <laughs> more women because I had this cut on my face. And surely enough, yeah. I did, and it was crazy. Of course. And and so I think <laughs> what you're speaking to is so much of that, which is just it's it's our it's really our belief about ourselves and our inner experience really creates our our external experience. And that's what I what I appreciated yeah. and, and the core of or some of the core of what I see you speaking to specifically with me and, and having me safeguard is to make sure that whatever's happening externally doesn't do anything but ramp up my own self-value and my own kind of appreciation and confidence within myself. Yes. Oh, my gosh, that's great. That's a really good metaphor. And I, I think that's so true that if you decide to challenge it and maybe push it the other direction, like, could it be a good thing? Could this improve my love life, my attractiveness, my confidence, my the perception of other people about, you know, my who I am and how, my value? I, <clears throat> excuse me, I really found that to be true. That, you know, I, I think about the version of beauty that I feel like I possessed in my you know, t- late teens and early 20s, which was, you know, really complying with the idea of you know, what a young woman should look like. And now I-, I turned 51 last year, and I've been really enjoying and choosing to enjoy the changes in my appearance and actually celebrating the fact that I don't look anymore like I looked in my 20s. And that includes everything that went along with my, you know, architecting my I look, you know, how much energy I put into trying to appear that version of perfect, whatever the fashion or the style or the, you know, you think about how many different ways right now these eyebrows are, you know, they're huge eyebrows or they're small eyebrows, you know, whatever it is, long eyelashes, natural eyelashes, tans, freckles are in, no, it's pale, uh, you know, voluptuous is in, no, skin, skinny is in. It doesn't it's not just age, right? We're constantly judging ourselves against an external set of standards that are basically set up to go with trends and fashion that are ten, intended to change so that we continue to buy more stuff and worry more. But now in my 50s, 
what I, I, I notice is that, first of all, if I am trying to attract the kind of man that is exclusively attracted to that look of a young 20-something woman, that's a losing game for me. And that's actually not the kind of guy I want to attract. And I do think that for me, it would definitely be signaling that there was something a little goofed up in my thinking if that was, that was really what I was after. Why would I want to be with someone who was exclusively interested in this very narrow frame of appearance that is exactly what our culture programmed him to think and want? I know myself, the, the man I've been with for four years actually is much younger than I am. And he is a complete one-off in terms of how he thinks, how he acts, what he does. I love him because he is a breaker of expectations and norms. And we have a lot of fun together. I have no idea whether people notice that we're different ages, care if we're different ages. But I know that I am dating him and I have him in my life in so substantial way because he contributes to my experience on a daily basis, not because he's bought into some very narrow frame of, you know, he has X or Y woman on his arm and that makes him more attractive or adds some kind of social value to him. It just became a kind of clearing um, experience to me to understand that if I was only attractive to someone on the basis of my adhering to a particular look or age appearance. It was not going to be the right person. And I wasn't going to have fun with him. We weren't going to have great sex. We weren't going to have deep, intimate conversations where he could know me and see me and understand me. And so I would say to you too, if you're making the assumption as a man whose hairline is receding, um, if that's in fact what's happening, I don't know. I haven't seen you in a while. I bet you're really, really cute though, because last time I saw you, you were full of spark and had confidence in yourself and you're sexy and you know it and you walk that way and you think that way and you talk that way. And part of the reason that you're sexy is that you think and you share and you want to help people and you're curious. Those things make you really attractive. Your willingness to share the truth about yourself. None of that's going to go away as your hair goes away. And any woman who decides that you are suddenly 10% less attractive because you have 10% less hair, I would argue is absolutely not the woman you're going to be having a whole lot of fun with or who has enough confidence in herself and sees herself in a deep enough, broad enough way to be able to really join you at the level you want to play at. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And everything that I was going to ask or say, I suddenly just feel speechless because thank you for such kind words. And um, yeah, you, you nailed it. So I'm going to pause and I do have a, a kind of deeper, well, a deeper discernment that I am, I guess, looking to understand for myself. And I imagine people who are are listening would also be wondering about. So like on one end of the, I'm not going to buy into the, the, the cult of, of youth, um, or I'm not going to buy into this kind of societal paradigm of what I'm supposed to look like. I I could just see it going to like, who, who comes to mind is like, a George Costanza type of guy, like, you know, like totally like, you know, sweatpants with like stains on them. And, and I'm like, and on the other hand, there's the, <laughs> there's the person who's like totally done up, you know, they're like walking down the Esquire hallways and like, you know, to the T with every little part of themselves that has been groomed. And I'm, I'm wondering how do we find the, the balance if it balance is even the right way to look at it, but how do we discern between 
I guess, caring for our appearance versus being seduced yeah. and manipulated by this this corporate um, culture that is just trying to feed on our insecurities. That's a great question. Well, I think I think about it this way. And again, I don't want to prescribe for anyone else how they should or should not think about it. But I can I can share what's been working well for me is I really delight in I think of my appearance as one of many assets that I came into this world with, you know, I, I the way that I look, which I like, um, I take pleasure in. I can have a lot of fun dressing myself up, putting makeup on, doing my hair, choosing jewelry and clothing that flatters my skin tone, that expresses my personality, that says to the world, hey, these are things I find beautiful and attractive or of high quality. And I express that taste, that set of preferences to the world, in part because I know that it will um, give me pleasure, but it also will attract other people to me who share some of those interests, those qualities. We are constantly broadcasting things about ourselves that we want the world to know. And it's, you know, like like a flower does the thing it does with pollen. It attracts a bee and the bee takes the pollen and it goes to another place and that spreads good things around. I don't have any problem with people anointing, um, decorating, uh, you know, primping <laughs> themselves however they want to. It's, it's more fun to do it in the spirit of I'm choosing to do this because it gives me pleasure than to do it in the spirit of because if I don't do this, I will not be good enough and no one will love me and I'll die lonely, broke and miserable on the street by myself, which is kind of where people go. And this again, I want to give Cindy Joseph credit for this of really helping me understand um, that, you know, for example, I wake up first thing in the morning with no makeup on my face and my hair kind of crazy and I put on whatever bathrobe or shirt happens to be handy. I know if my boyfriend looks at me in that state and he's like, Yuck, you know, I don't have nothing to do with her. Not the right guy for me. Now, I can put on the best stuff I've got and have fun making up my face and I can come down and be sexy, sexy. And he can take one look at me and go, whoa, you look amazing. Does that mean that I'm more attractive that way? Or does it mean that he's noticed I've put effort into making my appearance that way? Is that fun because I'm coming with the energy of like, hey, aren't I pretty? Isn't that kind of a neat way to relate to someone? Like I've taken some care to put myself together. I, I think all of that is part of the fun of being a human, you know, and I, don't, I would never deny anybody that. I have friends that don't do anything to to quote unquote improve their appearance who I find very attractive and very natural others who spend hours making up their face and doing all sorts of things they do it in an artistic fun cool way that I know expresses them I find all of that attractive the thing I find less attractive is when it's clear that someone feels that they cannot be seen without these layers of mm. makeup and um costume that they they just don't feel that anybody can see them that way. They don't ever want to be seen without makeup or without high heels or without their implants or their extensions or <clears throat> whatever they may be. And it may be an, just a judgment on my part that is ignorant, but I've come to associate a certain kind of consistently architected experience with a certain kind of lack of self-knowledge or lack of um, security or a kind of insistence 
that the the expression of one's physical appearance is the really central important thing that that person wants to get across. And maybe that's keeping me from getting to know them better and maybe keeping other people to know them better. It might just be that they're having a great time and this is the most fun that they can think of having. And if that's the case, you know, God bless, enjoy. Um, But when it comes to aging particularly, I think when I see people who are in their 70s and 80s who are trying to dress like they're 20, pass for something other than their age, it always makes me feel a little funny inside, you know, and I I wonder what's going on in their heart and their mind and what they're getting out of it and whether it's what they had hoped for, you know, if they're feeling the kind of happiness and confidence and, you know, vivaciousness that they might be chasing. Mm. Most of the time, I kind of doubt that. Yeah, the way that you describe this is the experience that I have sometimes when I talk to people and I just feel like everything they're saying is almost an avoidance of what they're actually experiencing. And so they'll say anything to avoid what is actually present for them and actually create lives and coping strategies to avoid feeling and connecting with some of those deeper emotions and doing that self-inquiry as to which is really scary sometimes, especially if you haven't done much of it as to, you know, what's actually going on beneath the surface. And there's a difference between the the type of, you know, the person who talks about the weather or something casually, just because it's, I don't know, just feels nice to do it in the moment and can go to the the deeper, more introspective places uh, when it's, when it's called for or relevant versus the person or, and, and I, you know, say the person I was, I was this way myself at some point, the person who just, um, stays, you know, strictly away from the things because there is a deep fear about going there. And that's, that's what I hear yeah. similar parallel as far as like, how are you presenting yourselves? Are you, you know, are you cool with going to the coffee shop in sweatpants and are, does that, or does that mess with your self-worth? And if you're cool with it, yeah. but then decide yeah. to get dolled up, like awesome, you have range and you can choose how you want to express yourself versus a kind of personality that gets created on top of an insecurity in order to try to protect ourselves. Yeah. I think one of the things that's happening that you're feeling, and I, I'm not sure if I'm putting words and thoughts into your mind, you can tell me if I am, but I have begun to notice that I am more comfortable around people who are comfortable with themselves, Mm. in part because I know that I, when I am in a place of judging myself harshly, I am also in a position of being ready to judge other people harshly. And when I'm around people who don't seem to be willing to reveal themselves, aren't comfortable in their own skin, Mm -hmm. I think I intuit that they are probably also judging me or prepared to judge me. And so there's something wonderful about being around people who are truly comfortable in their own skin, not just that they're pleasant to be around because they're more likely to have fun with you, (laughs) you know, like Mm. it's just more pleasant, more positive overall. But because I think on some level we go like, this is a safe person to be around. You know, this is a, this is a healthy person to be around. I'm not going to get hurt or jabbed in the sides by this person. No, this person's not going to walk away from me and say something mean about me to someone else. They're not going to make up a story about me. They don't need to. They're completely comfortable in their own skin. They're going to be happier if I'm happy. You know, that's just the kind of person that they are. So I think that some of what gets broadcasted when we're more comfortable in our own physical selves, whether they're an aging self or a different, you know, shaped self or a different weighted self, wherever we're at, like finding that 
Right. And and looking at like, what's the gift in this place, this state, this age, this status that draws something to me that I can experience and benefit from or ask something from me that I can elicit from within myself. And I felt as a woman and a woman in her you know, 50s, one of the beautiful things about aging is that younger women look to me in they, they, they're like, okay, something she's doing is right. Like, I, I'm attracted to that. And that gives, like, what an incredibly affirming thing to have happen. I always thought, oh, my gosh, you know, as I get older, my the younger women who are my, quote, unquote, audience, right, my listeners, my readers, what if they don't think I'm relevant anymore? And they only want to hear from women their own age. Wow, I don't want to lose these people. I want to talk to these people. But I never predicted that actually they put more, I think they maybe put more value in what I say now because I, they see I've lived. They trust that I've been through some things that they haven't been through. And I have, you know, so it's not just like I'm not fooling anybody. It's the reality. But wearing my age in my hair, on my skin, in my body, comfortably inhabiting my 50-year-old self is a wonderful gift, not just to me, but I think to other people. And this is one of the things my friend Cindy said, too, is like, I want people to know what 50 and 60 and 70 look like, so that we don't have all of these negative judgments where advertising tells us that 60 looks old and sick and like it needs five pharmaceutical drugs and depends. And, you know, not to say it's bad that you need pharmaceutical drugs and depends, but we've come to associate an unfortunate set of characteristics with aging that are stereotypical and assumed characteristics in part because the media has shown us that that's what a 50, 60 or 70 year old person looks like. And I don't think that necessarily is true. Definitely doesn't look like a 20 year old person, but it doesn't mean that that person has to be less attractive. And I do think too, part of the cult of youth we started talking about, younger people, just like older people have prejudice of all kinds and the prejudice that you were holding against yourself um, Jacob you know that wow I'm gonna lose my attractiveness as women observe that I'm not 23 they'll think less of me hmm. um, and I think that that's just a kind of maybe a, yeah I think that is a false assumption but definitely it's a self-limiting assumption so yeah and I don't know I yeah for sure and it <laughs> and as you, and as you said it's it, well as you said it's kind of a, a self-screening mechanism for attracting the type of person who is going to share values that I do care about and so sure maybe to yes. someone who I would have previously there would have been mutual attraction uh if if I don't look like I'm 23 anymore then maybe she wouldn't be attracted to me but that if that's solely the purpose and and the driver of the attraction probably not worth spending my time with uh with that person yeah. i i do want to go back to the the conversation we were having and then um, we'll, we'll move forward here but just about speaking to someone who uh, maybe avoids connecting with their deeper self and you saying you know that there's some kind of perhaps fear that uh, they might judge you and there, there's just the, there's a quality of feeling like it's not safe to really um, even be vulnerable they may go talk about you afterwards so I agree with that. And then the thing that came up for me as you shared that is one thing I learned from my love coach, Annie Lala, is that to whatever degree the person who you're with isn't feeling their own emotion, you'll feel it for them. 
So if someone's mm, really mm, anxious mm. and they aren't connected to their anxiety and they're just talking and disconnecting from their body and zooming ahead and you, you start to talk to this person for a few minutes or a minute, a few seconds even, suddenly you'll feel their anxiety. And for me, that's a little yeah. bit more of what is present for me when I'm speaking to someone who's disconnected from themselves is that I actually yes. feel so strongly their emotion that they're not feeling themselves. My dog is now going off. Hold on a second. Yes. He's Everything you just emotion. said, that is so true. He keeps yeah. feeling the anxiety for me. I think someone just walked past my Hold on a second. I'm going to go put him in a place where he can stop doing that. No worries. It's okay. You're okay. So now he's tail's wagging. Um, okay. So, yes, to everything you just said. And I think that that's part of what we pick up in small snippets, thin slicing, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell would call it, we pick up on all of this information when we first meet someone and it gets transmitted to us in ways that are not even rational. You know, we may not know why we feel the way we feel around someone when we first meet them. But my experience, like I think about in the context of aging, when I encounter people, regardless of their age, who, you know, are, um, finding themselves right and attractive, comfortable in their own skin, not trying, they may take great pride in their appearance, but they're not trying to disguise themselves as being a different age. I immediately feel at ease in my body around them. And I find myself looking into their face, their eyes, that listening into what they're saying in ways that inevitably make me find more and more things attractive about them. And I want to contrast that with encountering people who are very much trying to hide the physical sides of their aging, you know, whether it's a hair piece, uh, extensions, um, colored hair, eyelash extensions, pancake makeup that covers every texture and color of their natural skin. And what I find myself doing is looking closer and closer at the at the, the, mm. the limits of that masking right you see it you can even if you can't figure out quite what it is like is that a fake piece of hair or is that a <laughs> you know what is that like you start getting kind of <laughs> i just started like i'm looking at them and i'm looking at them and i'm like well what were you thinking that was is that supposed to pass for what is and i find that it is it is my judgment again it could be a wrong judgment Boy, this person has put a lot of effort into trying to disguise this part of themselves. That why are they ashamed of it? You know, what is it about being fifty or sixty or seventy that is less good in their, their mind than being twenty or thirty? And that disconnect is the thing that I'm more likely to find. I, I maybe the term unattractive is the wrong term, but less attractive to be sure than. Um, and this is why partially. Part of why I sent you to Pinterest, and I apologize if I traumatized you with that <laughs> I was like, Vin Diesel, no, no. <laughs> yeah, we don't have, it's like the curse of stock photography, too. There aren't enough really great natural pictures of people of all shapes and sizes, all ethnicities, all statuses of hair and age. So when you go to the mass market media to look for pictures, you can't always find great ones. But I gave you some examples of, you know, men who I think have aged well, and actually some who look better without their hair than with it. Um, and in my own life, my father was a bald man, or mostly bald from probably his 40s on. And I often looked at pictures of him when he was younger, and thought, gosh, you know what, down 
looks better without hair. He had a really nice head and he wore his baldness well. And I'm like, there was a brief period where he had a comb over that was awful. But younger, when he had a full head of hair, I actually don't think it looked as good on him. And uh, part of that may have just been who he grow into himself. But I find a lot of men who are bald very attractive. And I cannot say, I, I won't say I find all bald men more attractive than men with hair or anything like that. But I think it has much more to do with how those men wear their hair or lack thereof in ways that I think, you know, make them sexy. They tend to be confident and healthy and happy and good in their own skin and they're rocking it and it's part of their look and it works. Mm. <laughs> so whether or not you ever get to that point, I think, you know, what I'd want to say to men about their hair is please don't make the assumption that an extremely, a woman you find extremely attractive won't find you attractive because of that hair status, but also maybe broaden your own view of the women who you find attractive and ask yourself, do I only find women who are passing for 20 something attractive? Am I making a mistaken assumption that my sex life will be more satisfying with them, that they will be more fun or vivacious or, or that other people will think I've got it going on because they're my date? Why am I restricting my dating pool? to this apparent age range or only attracted to women who seem to pass for that age range. These are really interesting questions that can get at who you think you are, how you think your social value is built. And those questions, I absolutely think we owe it to ourselves and each other to be asking. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up. That was my next question for you is so, hey, what can we do? And kind of you giving us the those inquiries there to, to look into, I think is a great next step. For everyone who's listening, one thing I notice in myself is that any time I, I'll be going through the day and I'll I might think like, oh man, it's gonna be nice when I'm in that relationship, or even like even when I like see that person later, even when I see this person I'm dating later, what I often realize is that there is a feeling inside of myself that I'm dishonoring and I don't want to feel, and so I'm projecting my happiness and a greater experience of life out into the future. And it happens, it happens in micro moments. Like I'll just be, I'll be using the bathroom and be like, Oh God, it's going to be so great. You know, when I see that person later and then I realize, Oh, actually what's really happening right now is that I'm tired and I kind of need a nap and, or like, Oh, like I'm, Mm. I'm disconnecting from myself and then I'm projecting externally onto this date. And you know, for me, sex and, and, um, porn and kind of just uh this this realm has has been uh previously especially earlier on in my life has been my my outlet for stimulus for like where i where i get to pick me up mm-hmm. when i'm when i'm not connected to some of the uh lower states of consciousness or uncomfortable feelings or when i rather yeah when i'm when i'm in a lower state of consciousness but not connecting to those feelings and it's just become a really good um kind of signal almost like when your phone rings you know that someone is calling anytime i find myself thinking that something externally is going to then make me feel better it's just a signal that i'm avoiding feeling something right now and the real work is to get my own need met to hear what my need is and then to find out how to get it met myself in this moment and that's been really empowering for Ooh. me to navigate all situations, but particularly the uncertainty around just dating and relationships. That's really cool. Yeah, it reminds me of some conversations I've had with Dallas, um, my podcast partner, 
and um, Dallas Hartwig, he, you know, as a guy, we have these interesting conversations, these man-woman conversations, and I always really appreciate hearing from men how they think about sex and sexual attraction and you know, the ways in which it is different um, from my own. But I think one thing that both genders share is this tendency to transfer the um, hunger for one thing to an appetite for another, to, to mm-hmm. translate it as whether it's fatigue or anxiety or um, grief or longing for company, for love, for um, pleasure. In women's lives, that often shows up as a craving for food or a desire to go spend money on something shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can translate too to like, like I'm just going to go find somebody to have a, a fling with so I don't have to be lonely. But when we do, whether we revert to um, you know, the media version of the thing we want, we escapist literature or porn or social media as a distraction. Of course, the, tr- the challenge is that we aren't really going as deep as we, we might be able to go into like, you know, what is that appetite about? And what is, is it just that I'm tired? Is it tired and lonely? What, what is that? What is it telling me that I have this appetite? What would be the healthiest way to get this need, desire, longing met? How can I honor it without becoming the victim or the handmaiden of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think so often part of the maturing process, and again, the re, you know, you can't fake it. You can only be as wise as you are but age and experience really help um, is having enough repeated experiences with trying to get those needs met the superficial easy way and realizing like yeah that only goes so far you know and I think um, becoming a better reader of your own desires and appetites and a more not a skeptical but a more discerning uh, interpreter of them is a really great way to lead a healthier, happier, much more satisfying life. Um, so I uh, kudos to you for doing that kind of self-examination. I can see that that would really be valuable. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all that you've shared. We are over what we privately anticipated uh, would be the length of our conversation. But before we before we finalize, any last things that you want to offer to the people who are listening as far as anything we spoke about today or any action steps that you may suggest so that they can take this stuff out of just an interesting conversation intellectually, but maybe into a deeper application of the stuff we spoke about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can think of a couple things, you know, on the Living Experiment um, podcast that I do with Dallas, we always end our podcast with suggested experiments that people can do at home to kind of bring that information into an actionable realm. And that might be one thing I could offer is the experiment of um, looking, first of all, you can look at yourself in the mirror and begin cataloging whether you have any anxieties or insecurities about your appearance that have to do specifically with your age or feeling of fear of aging. And just make a note of those things and ask yourself as you go through that list, like, I think this is the Byron Katie approach of challenging your thoughts of arguing, you know, of, of like, hmm, is it true? that because I have a line uh, in my forehead that people will find me less attractive? Is it true that because I have silver hair or I'm losing my hair, it means X or Y? Just one by one, ask a few of those questions and notice that you can't necessarily know the answer. Does it mean my sex life is going to be worse as I age? Is that true? 
can that be true? Might it possibly be that I will actually have a better sex life as I get older and more comfortable in my own body and begin attracting partners who are more experienced and more sensitive and um, more comfortable in their own skin? So that would be a suggestion that I would have. Um, mm. The other things I suggest is, you know, do go listen to the Aging Gracefully episode of The Living Experiment if you're interested in knowing more about this. Um, the website for that is livingexperiment.com, but the podcast is also available on all of the major podcast platforms. And then I would just welcome people who are interested in these kinds of topics to connect with me personally. I'm working on a book right now called The Healthy Deviant, which is a rule breaker's guide to being a healthy person in an unhealthy world. And I'm really excited about building connections with the folks who might be interested in the content from that book. Um, so folks can connect with me through my social channels, um, which are Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and a little bit of Pinterest, or they can just cruise over to my website, which is pilargerasimo.com, and I bet you will link to it. Uh, my name is so hard to spell. Otherwise, you can search on Pilar and Deviant. You'll definitely find me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm starting to communicate more now through um, through through a newsletter there, and you can you can find more about my work if you're interested in it. Um, other than that, you know what? Just have fun with your body as it changes. You really only get to go through life in this body once, and uh, you might as well get the full ex- get the full money's worth. You know, go for the whole ride. That's my suggestion. Mm. Well, there's a lot that I appreciate about you. Obviously, you're wise and caring and ambitious and smart. And one of the things that really jumps out to me is your um, passion and dedication to questioning the norm and challenging cultural beliefs and kind of cultural paradigms. For me, one of my um, things that I've noticed about myself is I, I, if I look at the movies I like, they've been like growing up like Fight Club and The Matrix and anything that kind of helps me see beyond this illusion that is made up of social constructs of what we call reality. And you do such a great job at challenging the what most people just take as reality and helping them connect with a more empowered, uh, a deeper ownership and um, really just supporting them in, in living life in a way that actually matters most to them. So thank you for sharing your time today. Thanks for holding a mirror up to me and inviting us to have this conversation. I appreciate you. And yeah, I encourage everyone who's listening to definitely check out your podcast and stay connected to you. So thank you, Pilar. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. It's a pleasure as always.